This is Top Floor, episode 67. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 67. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. A lot of the people I interview on top floor have working at a hotel front desk somewhere on their resumes. But I can't think of anyone besides today's guest, Connor Vanderholm, whose literal first job was as front desk manager at a 900 plus room hotel with about 20 employees. Connor has also been a diamond dealer, a farmer, and a grocery store bag boy, but he is now founder and CEO of Topline Revenue Management. Today, we are going to talk about how terrible times can yield terrific results. But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals and pretty much anyone with burning questions. If you'd like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630 or send me an email to susan at topfloorpodcast.com. Today's question was submitted by Rodolfo. Rodolfo says, <laughs> this is funny. Hotel rooms are so expensive right now. And there's like nine exclamation points. Is it better to book way in advance or wait until the last possible minute? Man, I'm so interested in your answer to this because there are so many urban legends about how this works. Connor, what do you think? Yeah, so uh, way in advance is probably how I would do it right now, unless it's a really specific event that you're coming into town for, which has a lot of demand and a lot of hype, but there's not actually going to be that many people coming in. An example is maybe the big 10 championship in Indianapolis right now, a lot of hype. Everybody thinks that everybody's going to be there, but there's so many hotels that everybody's going to drop right last minute. Right. So that's what I would say. Probably book three to six months in advance. Okay. So let me make it more specific. I just registered for a conference that I'm going to attend next August. And the conference website's like, Oh, our hotel rooms always sell out. Be sure that you book. Be sure that you book. And yet when I went to book, I felt like they were very overpriced. Do you think I'm making a mistake by waiting? Should I go ahead and book now? Or what do you think? This is what you do. So you get your room booked. Uh, and then you check back in. You just keep monitoring it till the last minute. You have up to you know 24 hours to cancel and rebook. So do that. Just watch it like a hawk. Okay. So I'm going to tell you in this particular case, the cancellation policy is 72 hours and it's an automatic one night charge if you cancel. Mm. So I did not book because I 100 thousand percent know that even if I can't get at the conference hotel, I can do better. I feel so disloyal saying that. Like, what a bad hotel person, but that's how I'm doing it. Susan, I did the exact same thing a couple weeks ago at a conference we attended <laughs> together, so don't feel bad. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll let myself off the hook then. So the way, Connor, that you ended up in the hotel business is pretty unusual. Like many people say... 
oh, I fell into it. I fell into hospitality. But you did almost the opposite of that because you decided that you wanted to work for Marriott based on the company rather than like deciding that you wanted to work in the hotel business. Can you talk about that process? Yeah. So uh, I went to school at BYU-Idaho. And so I was getting a general business degree with an emphasis in finance. And I spent the whole last year, uh, literally two to three times a week in the office of my mentor, one of my business professors, trying to figure out, okay, I've got this huge broad degree. Where am I going to apply it to? I had a lot of uh, colleagues and a lot of classmates who were exiting school without a job in hand. And that terrified me. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I spent a lot of extra time doing this with him. And I, we went through all the different industries and nothing was really, uh, you know, ringing my bell. And so he said one day, let's, let's take a different approach and look at some specific companies. And BYU is very well connected to the Marriott School of Business, right? That's the, the BYU Provo Business School. Uh, and, and one of the companies he came up with was Marriott. And so I said, okay, let's look at that a little bit. I reached out to some of my colleagues you know, former friends who had worked for the company and they had nothing but great things to say. It's very culture driven, very family friendly, very, um, just, just a wonderful group of folks to work with. And I was actually directed to revenue management from that friend who told me, Hey, you really need to look into revenue management. It's not something you've probably ever heard of before. Of course it wasn't. Uh, nobody really ever knows what revenue management is. I know. So did your friend think that you should look at revenue management because it was like a good discipline to be in or because it was a good match to your personality? Both. So he absolutely loved it because he had done that as a discipline. And uh, I, to this day, feel strongly that it's the best discipline within the hotel industry. Uh, Of course you do. No offense to anybody else, but it's it's wonderful. (laughs) I love it. And, uh, And he knew me specifically. And so that's where he pointed me to. Hospitality remains an industry where not only is a degree not required to have a big career, but honestly, some leaders in hotels would prefer to hire people that don't have them. What's the relationship or what should be the relationship between academia and hospitality? It's a really broad question. I think it it varies from case to case. But if I had to generalize, um, I would say, uh, depending on the discipline you're going into. So with revenue management, academia, I think it's important because getting a business degree or a finance degree or something similar to that with revenue management is very, very beneficial. The way you approach the economics of pricing. Right. And that's something that I, I gained a lot of good information through my university studies. But I went straight into operations. I didn't go straight into revenue management. And so I, my particular course, I think it was in a lot of ways a disadvantage because I had to completely reset my mind to do operations of a business as opposed to the financial aspect of it that I was really focused on in school. So, what was it like being the front office manager for 900 room hotel when you were fresh out of school. Thank heavens I had a boss who was uh you know running the show and I was her <laughs> her little peon at the time. Uh but it very very difficult. It was jumping in and and drinking from a fire hose right out the gate. I was not prepared for it. I wasn't prepared for all the extra stuff. I knew the business side of it like I, I understand the dollars and cents but man, it was tough. And it's it's not it's not necessarily my personality either. Uh, to do operations. I love people, 
but I love, I love finance and I love money and I love the number side of it probably more. So. (laughs) Gotcha. Well, you quickly moved off property and into revenue management where you had been guided. After that first experience, you worked for the centralized revenue management services at both Hilton and Marriott. And that led to remote-based multi-property positions with a couple different management companies. How would you characterize or describe, I guess, the pros and cons of managing revenue off property? Like, Do you think you missed out on anything by being remote? Or do you think that it was exactly as it should have been? So there's definitely a cost savings if we're just getting into the utilitarian argument for remote revenue management. There's a huge cost savings and it's effective for hotels, right? Especially limited service hotels. Okay. Big box hotels can be a little bit different. And oftentimes they'll have an on-property dorm because they need to be really, really, really plugged into that one hotel and all the comings and goings throughout the day. Uh, What I think I have missed out on uh, doing remote revenue management with so many different hotels across different markets is understanding really what the product is, like what the hotel looks like, what the beds feel like, what the flow of traffic is. That all plays a huge factor in revenue strategy. And it's not something that, uh, in my opinion, the brands do well, and it's not necessarily their fault, but it would be very expensive to send revenue managers out to every one of these hotels if you've got 13 hotels on your portfolio, let's say. Uh, But on the flip side of that, I see the, the benefit in that. So my team now visits every one of our hotels. Interesting. I think I was expecting you to say something about the relationship with your coworkers. So is it fair to interpret that you were able to build great relationships, whether you were remote or not? Absolutely. Uh, For me, yes. Um, but it's been much <laughs> You're like for me, I got it, but other people, people, not so much. <laughs> I know some people struggle with it. I'm a very outgoing person. Uh, and so I, I just jump in and break the ice very quickly. Some people just aren't that way. Uh, so it can be difficult to develop a relationship via zoom, but there's definitely a, a, a stronger relationship in every case when you're shaking hands. Gotcha. I know that your experience as a missionary in Argentina was incredibly formative. Are there one or two lessons from that time that you think translate to the hotel business? Yeah. Uh, Just a culture of serving and an attitude of serving would be the first one. As a missionary, regardless of the reason that you're there, you're ultimately there to serve people. Uh, And so you're looking for opportunities to just go the extra and and give that little extra special something to somebody that's going to make their day. It's going to make their, their year, right? Hotel industry is the same way. And I think it's taught really well in the, uh, the Ritz Carlton's and the full service Marriott's of the world, a limited service probably need to put a little bit more attention into it. Uh, But, but for those big hotels, I think it's done well. The second takeaway I, I would say is more from an entrepreneur standpoint in building a business which is don't take it personally when you when you get some rejection, right? Uh, people will reject you most of the time. You're not looking for most of the people. You're looking for the specific people who your service is going to be most effective for and it's going to be a right fit for. So you, you understand it's always a no until you get the one yes. Oh, that's really interesting and very unexpected, but Excellent advice. So most people are going to reject you. I mean, it's hard not to take that person. 
<laughs> but it makes a lot of sense. I can, I can definitely see how that helps in your business. Yeah. The story of how you founded Topline really, I think, mirrors the founding of so many great companies in that you were almost forced into it in order to kind of turn a terrible situation around. Tell us what happened. Yeah. So my story is not particularly unique in the hotel space in that we all had this massive displacement during COVID, right? But it's a little bit unique how I approached it, I think. So uh, in my situation, I had just taken a new revenue management position with a different management company on on March 2nd of 2020. So Yikes. three weeks before the pandemic really ran roughshod over our industry. Uh, three weeks later, I got the phone call that I myself being the new guy on the block, as well as everybody else was being laid off, right? Um, I was really excited about that new position. Uh, the money was there. The, the, the flexibility was there. I was just really excited about it. Had you even gotten like your first paycheck or started doing training or anything? I literally got one paycheck, um, (laughs) which I think came that week that I, that I left or that I was removed. So, um, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty intense. And we were having our third child, uh, was due in July of that year. Uh, so it wasn't, wasn't great timing. I know it's not funny, but like if you wrote this as a movie script, people would be like, this is impossible. This is too hard to believe this many things can't happen at the same time. And yet it actually did. It definitely did. And again, I I know this happened to so many in our industry. I know a lot of them, so it's not particularly unique, but I, I think the uniqueness for me came in my approach. And so instead of uh, moping around for a long period of time, which was the temptation. I got to work. I got with several of my colleagues. We formed the company. We started reaching out to clients and started uh, starting building it. So that was uh, the approach. And it really took a year and a half of just nothing, of just nothing, no paychecks, no nothing, just work until there was any kind of results from it. Right. And so that was the difficulty of slogging through it, um, but not, not letting off the gas at all. Before that happened, so before you had been laid off, had you thought about starting a company before? Like, was that always sort of a back burner plan for you? Or was this like a, okay, I got to do something? No, that was absolutely something that I always thought about and that I discussed with a lot of my colleagues. A lot of us know that we want to do consulting, we want to do our own business, we want to do these things. But there's, it's a huge gap to, to leap between having the golden handcuffs of stability and financial stability, right? And then actually going out and doing it. Because, uh, I mean, I had a small family, right? I, I have a house to pay for. I've got bills to pay for. I wasn't going to give up the stability that I had and jump both feet and face first into this business, Right. Um, it just wasn't in the cards, but as soon as those golden handcuffs were released, it's funny. Uh, as soon as I lost my job, I spoke to my, both my folks. Right. Uh, and my dad was all consolatory, like, Oh, I'm so sorry. This is terrible. We'll get through it. But my mom was quiet and she was kind of almost giddy with excitement. And I was like, mom, what are you like? What are you excited about? And she said, I just know my son and I know you're going to turn this into something amazing. So I can't wait to see what you do. That's so cool. Well, your mom's the entrepreneur too, isn't she? She is. She is. So there you go. And she was right. So 
You are in the midst of sort of another evolution in your company with a new software product in beta right now. Can you explain what it is and how a hotel would use it? Yeah. So it's called Fenced, uh, which is a reference to fenced uh, rates or corporate or negotiated rates uh, within the revenue management space. Basically, it's a rate shopping tool for corporate and local negotiated accounts. Uh, and so we spend a lot of time with rate shopping tools for uh, public available rates, uh, but this will allow hoteliers to shop their competitive set uh, much more effectively using some automation. Um, they're already doing it by manually picking up the phone and calling their competing hotels and pretending to be from Boeing. Uh, but we're so archaic in the way that we're doing it right now. It's just it's manual and tedious and just isn't being done to the extent that it needs to be. And that corporate segment is so huge for a hotel so we're not doing our due diligence. And so this is going to automate a lot of those processes that will allow uh, these hotels to know exactly where their market stands with these competitive rates and respond to these RFP bids uh, with the, the correct rate, right? It's funny, you know, doing corporate rate shops, there are some services that'll do it for you, but they make the phone calls. And if you've done it enough over enough years, you can tell... If the person who's doing the shopping is asking like any probing questions or not, like if they're like, Hey, do you have an ABC company rate? And the person on the other end of the line is like, Oh, our corporate rate is blah, blah, blah. And they just write that down. You can tell you, it, it you can tell they're not digging deep enough. Why do you think that something like this automated hasn't been created until now? I think there's a few reasons and I've racked my brain about this for a long time to figure out why doesn't this exist yet. And I've come to the following answer. Uh, there's not that many of us that have access to the information and know uh, how those corporate rates are set up and how they're booked. Um, and of those that, that do have that information, there's a few of us that are vendors and those vendors um, are often really engaged in the service. And then there's management companies that work with a wide range of brands but those management companies aren't innovators. They're not software creators. And so there's just nobody really looking at it. And those that are and, and say, I wish I had this tool, they're not the ones who are going to create the tool. And so it just hasn't been done yet. That's interesting. I know that one reason creating software was particularly appealing to you is that it makes a company more attractive for acquisition. So in other words, you're positioning yourself for your exit, which is very smart. I'm not that smart by any stretch of the imagination. I know this may or may not happen anytime soon, but this is sort of your strategic thinking as you're you're working through it. So I have to ask, and you, I know you're not going to want to answer, what does your second company look like after you sell this one? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's a, it's a great question. And you and I have talked about it a little bit. So... Um, preface this with, I have no plans on leaving anytime soon. Uh, but when the time comes, uh, as any entrepreneur knows, and what we discuss on the entrepreneur side that we don't discuss with anybody else really is it's all about the exit, right? It's all about what you do at the end and how you, how you set that up. So eventually that'll be the case. And, and when that happens, um, the second company will still be in the hospitality space. It's going to be tech centered. Uh, the, the difficult part with the tech is to have the finance, the financial wherewithal to create software. It's very, very expensive. 
and then having the connections within the space to be able to beta test and then bring it to market effectively um, and to, to really create a product that people are going to want and it's going to make their jobs easier and make their jobs better and make them more money. And so that's where we'll, we will focus. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from each episode of Top Floor with some very specific and practical tips that they can try either in their businesses or in their personal lives. So you talked about the challenge and difficulty of creating a piece of software. Say I have an idea for a software product. It doesn't exist yet. I'm definitely not a dev. I'm not a coder. I don't know how to write code. How do I get it made? Like, what did you have to do when you had the idea to then find the right person? Like, do you just Google it? What do you do? So, congratulations, you're just like me. Um, what I did was just immediately start talking to my network, um, having personal conversations with individuals who I knew no interacted with developers and got some, um, got some referrals from them, who they use, who they like, who they would avoid. Uh, and then I started reaching out to those development companies. And so that's, that's how I ultimately found the one that I, that I, that I use. Um, and then, um, I would, I would say just, just understand that it's going to be very expensive. Right. And so do it. But do it in chunks. Do it um, pay as you go. Don't take out a big loan and you know spend a hundred thousand dollars on software development. Right? That's a that's a really bitter pill to swallow. Uh, if you approach it and cash flow it like we're doing, then you don't have to finance any of it. Uh, but that said, it's still going to be very expensive if you're cash flowing it. <laughs> so, did you do anything, Connor? To I'm not exactly sure how to ask this question, but to inoculate yourself against being taken advantage of. So for instance, if somebody's like boop, boop, beep, beep, bop, bop, technical terms, and you don't know what they mean, how do you know if they're pulling the wool over your eyes? You know? Yep. Great question. And I, uh, I go back to consistently having conversations with people in my network that do that. And I say, Hey, this is the quote I got from my developer for this and this and this. Does this make sense? And in in many cases, I've had them come back and say, "No, nah, that's that's pretty expensive. Like that's probably more expensive than it needs to be." And so then, before signing on the dotted line, I make sure that I I dot my eyes and cross my t's with them. Everything is spelled out in any kind of contract, and that I'm getting regular reports on the updates as well. And so that's that's been my approach to it because I know that I just don't know. Gotcha. See, I think I would have the uh, Hermione Granger like, all right, I'm going to read 74 books about this <laughs> and then try to boss the uh, coders around, which is probably not a wise move. So thank you for that good advice. Okay. Um, since I know that you will be eventually starting that second company at some point, what are the mistakes you made in the early days of top line that you want to make sure you don't repeat. Can I be super real with you, Susan? Absolutely. Please. <laughs> okay. I will not have a business partner. That's not because I don't want a business partner. Uh, I really, really want a business partner. There's a lot <laughs> of draws. There's a lot of draws for me in that. There's um, there's additional people to help pull. There's it helps your company grow and get bigger quicker. Um, there's a lot of reasons for it. There's a lot of strengths that they have that I won't have. However, having been through this now at this point, I realize that there's a lot of heartache that comes with that and a lot of messiness that comes with it because people are different. Their desires are different. And even if they're aligned today, they'll change tomorrow. 
mine will change tomorrow. Theirs will change tomorrow. And it's, it just gets messy. And, and uh, other than uh, calling it a heartbreak, I don't know what else to call it. It just is because you care about these people, you're working with them, you're in the trenches with them. And then when those things shift, when the dynamics change and we need to start parting ways or changing, that is a very difficult thing for a people person like me. And, uh, and so I'm going to avoid that. And I'm just going to understand that there's a lot of loneliness in being an entrepreneur. It's just how it is. And, uh, you know, you can have your, your tough, uh, your, your support systems with your existing family and friends, and that's enough. You don't need to have another person in the business with you. I could not agree more. Amen. On a lighter note, you come from a large family of eight children, and I think you're working on a large family of your own. You have three little ones, five and under. What are a couple of travel tips that you would share with other large families or groups that are traveling together? Extended stay hotels. Your, <laughs> yes. Those are your best friends, the all suites properties uh, for a couple simple reasons. The rooms are bigger. There are kitchens, which are crucial for having small kids. You're always washing bottles and you're, you know, cleaning up puke and stuff, (laughs) whatever comes along with it. That extra sink. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And I think it makes you a better guest at the hotel when you have small kids because it's quieter, it's less rambunctious, and you're able to kind of keep the kids corralled a little bit better than if you're in a really small, minimalist room. Uh, that goes without being said. And then the other thing I would tell you is if you're driving, invest in one of those cargo boxes that go up on your roof racks. Uh, that's been huge for us. And we've got a three, oh. we have three children and uh, we've got a third seat SUV, our third row, uh, and investing in that cargo space for taking strollers, for taking uh, pack and plays is has been a lifesaver for us. Good to know. You know, it's funny when I was coming up in the full service hotel world, we were very looked down our noses at people who thought that every hotel room should come with a refrigerator. Dude, I will not stay somewhere that doesn't have at least a mini fridge or something like that. It's not worth it. Like, what? What? Huh? Yeah. No, I agree. <laughs> so I completely understand where you're coming from. We have reached the fortune telling portion of our show. So now's the time where we predict the future. We'll come back later and hold it up to the light and see if we were right. What is one prediction you have about the future of revenue management or commercial strategy in hotels? Yep. So there's a big difference between the old school mentality of hoteliers who have done this for the last 20, 30 years and the new generation of hoteliers, their children who are now taking over their, their hotels and their approach because they've been raised with all this technology. Uh, they're much more forward thinking and automation focused. And so I 100% know that, uh, that automation is going to be a huge key automation behind the scenes, not necessarily guest facing. So for revenue management, we're going to be uh, you know, using a lot of the, the algorithms and technology that we have to do the heavy lifting, even more so. And we got some great products out there that are doing great now, but it's going to become more and more of that and take less of the control away from us because the systems can, uh, they can do so much more quicker react faster and make uh, you know, more relevant decisions pricing wise and inventory wise to help a hotel, uh, you know, in a way that we as humans just can't, I can't make 5,000 rate changes in a day, but a revenue management software will, right? 
So that, that's the, that's the first piece. And then just touching back on it, I don't know that the hotel operations become more automated because that personal touch is what our industry is known for. And me as a consumer and me as a traveler and a guest at hotels, I don't want that piece to go away. And I, I would feel like my money is being wasted if it was taken away. I'm there for the experience. I totally agree with you. Like all this conversation about, oh, well, there's robots cleaning guest rooms in China right now. I Who cares, dude? That is not where value add is coming from, in my opinion. So I agree with you. Your prediction, I deem correct, even <laughs> though we haven't gotten there yet. If you could wave a magic wand, what is something that you would change about our industry? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I like so much about our industry. The, the, I guess I love the people because they're so hospitable and they're just kind. So I wouldn't change that. But what I would change is the, uh, I would change the profitability and the compensation for the people, uh, in our industry because it's, we're behind, we're behind there. Uh, and then in that same sweep of the wand, I would, uh, make our industry embrace technology more and being will be willing to uh, adopt some of the new technology that's out there that people are just dragging their feet because they think, Oh, I can't spend money. I can't spend 200 bucks on a piece of software. That's going to make me $10,000 more. <laughs> it's just weird to me. And our industry is pretty behind in that. hundred percent. What is next for you and what's next for your company? Uh, we're going to continue to grow. So it uh, means, I mean, I, I feel like I am my company, right? <laughs> Everything I do is a reflection of what we do here at Topline. So both of me personally and with my company, we're going to continue to grow. We're going to continue to outsource our services for revenue management. And then as we build the software, uh, we're going we're gonna to shift into that as a, a separate um, you know, portion of our business that, that eventually will overtake the service side, though we never want to get rid of that. So it's just onward and upward for us. Okay, folks, before we tell Connor goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Connor, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? Susan, I've got a couple of them, and I think I'm going to go with the more watered down one because the other one is just too intense. The other one's too intense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Up to you. You can tell them both if you want. Okay. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the intense one. Okay. Um, so I was uh I was doing a cruise with a couple of friends in my college years. Okay. We went down to Ensenada, Mexico. All right. And uh me and my buddy were going around the shops and 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 talking to the folks and buying the different wares that are for sale there. And uh, we came across a fellow named Jose and he was speaking to us in English and I'm fluent in Spanish at this point. So didn't need that, but uh, he was speaking to us in English and he was saying, Hey guys, what are you looking for? And so my buddy had, well, I've got a few different things that I'm looking for. He says, I know where all the best prices are. I can get you whatever you need. Let me just take you around. And so he says, okay, well, let's go look for a silver chain, like a really thin silver chain. And I want it to be stamped appropriately and know that it's actual silver and I need it to be for this price. And so Jose says, no problem. Yeah, I'll take you right there. So he, we follow him uh, and takes us right to this one uh, particular vendor and you know discusses with her and kind of haggles the price with her and says, the only way they're going to buy it is at this price. And so she agrees. And so he shows it to me. I said, yep, this is, this is real silver. I know because I'm a jewelry salesman <laughs> at the time. Um, <laughs> great. You, you have to always say diamond dealer. It just diamond sounds dealer, so yeah. much more glamorous. <laughs> Less blood involved with jewelry, right? <laughs> um, and so, <laughs> and so um, 
yeah. So that went great. And so my buddy says, actually, I've got like, you know, five or six different things here. Here's all the, the different items that I'm looking for. And so Jose says, yeah, no problem. So he starts taking us around, uh, you know, weaving in and out of these shops and taking us, he even takes us in the back room of where the wholesalers are, where all of these, uh, vendors purchase and then go out on the street and sell to us, you know, us tourists. Oh wow! Uh, and he wasn't supposed to take us back there, but the, <laughs> regardless, they know him really well. So we were able to get really good pricing on stuff. And so at this point, we're just following him around one thing to the next. And he's got this mental list. And as we're going, he keeps asking us, what about, what about like women? You want to, you want to get some women? And me and my what? buddy are like, <laughs> we keep saying, no, Jose, like, we're just, we think he's joking. Right. Uh-huh. And so we're like, no, Jose, we're good. Like, let's just find these things. And and then we'll pass another bar and he'll say, you see those guys right over there? I helped them find some women earlier. And we just kind of giggle and just say, nah, dude, we're, we're fine. Really, we're good. And, uh, and we just can proceed and we find a leather belt and then we find some dominoes and we do whatever else. And then at this point, we're just following him. And he takes us into this, this uh, building that doesn't have anything. It's nondescript, right? We walk into this room and it's this big open you know, reception area and there's a reception desk in the corner and a lady stands up and says, well, welcome. Uh, and then at the same time, three women in lingerie come out from the what? back room and stand in the doorway and just like pose up against the wall. And so my buddy, and he doesn't speak Spanish and she's kind of speaking to us in really broken English, but then we switched to Spanish because she knows I speak Spanish. And my buddy's just sitting there like, oh no, I know where we are. And I'm not registering what's going on here just yet. I'm that innocent, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm not understanding what's happening. This and so is she's like, just past missionary days, right? This is just past, yeah. This is like a year okay. past missionary days. So picture me in a white suit and tie, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so this lady, the receptionist says, well, we've got a few different options for you. We've got a 30 minute massage. We've got a 45 minute massage. You can pick your masseuse here. And, and I'm just like, uh, I am so sorry. <laughs> I didn't know we were coming here. I don't even know where we are, but really we're good. We're not, we're not here for any massages. <laughs> and my buddy at this point is just sitting there shaking his head. Like, I don't know what the heck's going. And he just oh like, my God. he just like puts his head down and stops talking. And then the conversation proceeds in Spanish. And she's like, well, since you're here, why don't we get you a great deal on a massage? And you can pick, <laughs> pick your lady to do that. And I said, uh, no, really, I'm good. I've got a girlfriend. We're all set. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm not here for that. And she says, well, I won't tell. Oh and, my gosh. <laughs> and I this said, yeah, like but, relentless up sales. She was, she was an incredible saleswoman. Incredible. Oh uh, and then I said, well, I'll know. And that's not going to happen. And then she looks at my buddy and says, well, what about him? And I just look at him and I said, I don't, cause he doesn't have a girlfriend and I don't know what he would do here in this situation. So I said, no, nah, he's gay. He's not into women. <laughs> Good. And so on that note, I said, thank you. Sorry to waste your time and we leave. But um, it was a very interesting one. That is so funny. I just can picture young Connor, eyes wide open. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. what the heck is going on? Well, Connor Vanderholm, thank you so much for being here. I know that our listeners got great tips and are on the edge of their seats for your new product to come out. And I really appreciate you riding with us to the top floor. Thank you so much, Susan. What a pleasure. Thank you for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 67. Top Floor is produced by Don Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. 
If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 